This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hi, guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Today, please make sure to subscribe. Please hit the bell. This allows me to provide you guys more free content. Okay, so this is the second portion of the QA interview I did with Joan Iflin. She is all things food addiction. One thing I want to mention that we did not finish talking about in our interview is about sweeteners. I asked her what she thought of sweeteners in general, and she believes that a lot of the addiction is when we feel those dopamine highs. It's that reward and how we want to constantly seek it. So her response was that a lot of times when we are searching for food, it's not really the binge, but the binge process is when we have that dopamine high. And so the same thing goes that when we are eating sweetener foods, it actually triggers a dopamine rush right here as soon as it gets into our mouth and hits our taste buds. So it's not necessarily that you're digesting the sweeteners and that that's what's causing the cravings, but it's as soon as it hits your mouth, the sweeteners that hit your taste buds hit the dopamine receptors and then again will cause the cravings and essentially. All of the food addiction comes down to cravings. So, I hope that answers your questions about why sweeteners may not be ideal, why fat bombs, why diet sodas, why all of those artificial and natural sweeteners are not ideal from a food addiction perspective, and also from gut health and other things. Okay, let's get right into the rest of the interview. So I went to therapy for eating disorders, and in the, that whole food addiction, So many people had in tandem、um, either drug or alcohol addiction.、Mm-hmm. And so when they were trying to give up both, it was nearly impossible.、Um, and so they first worked on the alcohol and like drug addiction, and then they would work on the food addiction.、Um, mm-hmm. But then they would end up relapsing with both. It was so bizarre, or not so bizarre. It didn't have enough murmuring in the background. Oh, yeah. They, they,、um, the therapy wants you to eat. All foods in moderation. And so you would have to do challenge foods with like eating a cupcake in front of your dietitian, saying that that is realistic moderation. And if you、oh, eat this, then they would give you a cup of Ensure, to, which is just processed sugar. And、uh, hey, at least you're getting nutrients. 
with all the added yeah but you can pick and not eat meat and they were okay with that so you were okay to be vegetarian though but you could not selectively pick out sugar isn't that wild okay that just makes me just makes me so sad but that's how conventional eating disorder facilities are run that because they go by the standard american diet right it's grains and yet you can pick and choose not to eat the meat you could say i'm vegetarian they'll honor that but if you're like i don't really eat sugar they're like no 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 that's an eating disorder behavior yeah you got there's there's a really interesting story behind the um the food pyramid which i don't think most people know so i you know, my undergraduate degree is in political science and economics and then i have an mba from stanford which i think that kind of a background is really useful for understanding what the heck happened and what happened with tobacco was there came a surgeon general who was just really full of integrity. He assembled a committee of um, medical experts to address the question is of does smoking cause cancer? And the tobacco industry was only able to finagle to get two out of the 10 uh, from their side. So that's why we have the surgeon general's warning on tobacco, 1964. Oh. At that same time, sugar was invading Harvard. <laughs> and there were two nutritionists there. Harvard is, a, is one of the schools that has a Department of Nutrition. Not all schools do. Fred Stare and Mark Hegstead. And sugar paid them to say that heart disease is caused by fat. Heart disease is caused by sugar. Oh, yeah. We, we know how sugar um, disrupts the lining of the heart vessels. So it's just like, dang. So these two very influential nutritionists wrote the paper and everybody believed it. And that set off the low fat craze, which low fat, fat of course, as we know now is so satisfying, so anti cravings and people were stuck with these refined carbohydrate diets. Mark Hegster went on to head the dietary guidelines development at the, um, at the USDA. So that is why the first pyramid, food pyramid, the bottom row is 100% highly addictive, refined processed carbohydrates. You right. must be kidding. But that's what he was able to do. And you look at the composition of the Dietary Guidelines Committee, and like seven out of 13 are straight from the food industry. So they control that committee. And it's, you know, it's, it's just, we're, we're not getting any support from the federal government. Yeah. And unfortunately, Harvard, um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you know, Harvard's an elite school. So their nutrition school must be, you know, top of the line, best recommendation. So a lot of people cite them. And it's so unfortunate because they're very plant-based uh, plant friendly and uh-huh. less meat. Um, if you, if you uh-huh. look at any of their um, articles on yeah. You know, how to uh, work on your heart disease. It's, uh, you know, go like high fiber, high grain, whole grains. Um, crazy. Just yeah. crazy. So corrupt. Incredibly corrupt. Yes. But people say you, yeah. you have a, uh, a religious organization that owns uh, breakfast cereal companies <laughs> like Kellogg's. Oh, okay. That's, I, th- I thought you were saying Kellogg's. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
they have a religious belief that Jesus is not coming back until the whole world is vegan. Oh, well, okay. I didn't know. coincides really closely with their economic interests. And they have a lot of, uh, if, um, Belinda Fetke, F-E-T-T-K-E, has done a lot of research on how this religious organization uh, in, you know, tightly tied to these breakfast cereal companies are placing scientists and doctors and getting on boards with all of this plant-based stuff. Humans for, I mean, I'm listening to an incredible book right now called Sapiens. 40,000 years ago, humans were so interested in finding meat, animal products, that they, um, you know, they spread over the whole world. And they were so good. I mean, this is not going to be complimentary at all, but they were so good at finding meat that like some species of animal be- became extinct when humans came into these continents. Right. They were so good at hunting them, and they were so driven to hunt them. Yeah, there was no real heart disease back then, even though they were eating primarily just meat and fat. No, um, no heart disease, osteo- osteoporosis, you don't see that. Oh, yeah. People are eating grains uh, 15, like 15,000 years ago when they started eating grains all year round. I mean, that's why a lot of our kids, um, they get so many cavities now. I mean, the cavity rate like per kid is exponentially more than even just like 20, 30 years ago. Well, brain cavities, learning disorders, attention yeah. deficit, behavior disorders, uh, fatty liver in children. I know. And uh, depression and suicide in children. This is all processed foods. Oh, no, I absolutely believe it. And screens. And screens. Yeah. One question I had is, so, you know, as we are journeying um, through food addiction recovery and we're having our new new tribe and we're reprogramming, you know, those moments where we are completely not using our mind and we are, are like our frontal and we are completely acting emotionally, irrationally. Um, those are when the cravings really kick in, right? Which makes sense. It talks about your stress and the um, cravings kind of being connected. So how do you, when you're not right-minded, how do you write that situation so you don't touch the foods that your kind of brain wants? Okay. Yeah, let me divide the world into ARC members and not ARC members. Okay, fair. Members get out their earphones and they plug in a podcast. Okay. An ARC podcast. And what that does is it stimulates the ARC neurons. Oh, yeah, this is the tribe I'm following. Whole name of the game. Everything is about what kind of stimulation from the environment is reaching into that primitive, reflexive brain. Now, if you're not an ARC member, you can still go to YouTube and you can binge watch um, my videos. I know, I know, that sounds like, wow, does that woman have an ego or what? No, this is just, uh, okay, it's one person, you should have five people, but you can activate that um, conformance drive by watching one person enough. Hey. 
Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. That makes so sense. And you I, have a lot of videos, so I'll link to that in the show notes so people can get access. And then I'll also um, access, um, give the links to your um, group. So if people are interested, um, you know, I think community is so important to um, everything. Yeah, community is the opposite of addiction. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, we, um, I hosted a kind of uh, community carnivore nutrition period during the holidays. And, um, you know, there's some people that, it's changed their lives because. Oh gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, just such a comprehensive addiction. It, it really takes people down emotionally. It, it just makes them depressed, irritable, anxious, and shamed. It takes them down mentally. They're confused in brain fog. It takes them down physically. I mean, there's no cell function. Every cell is impacted. How you're going to get sick could be genetic. You know, whether your gut is your weakest and you're going to develop irritable bowel syndrome or your heart is your weakest and you're going to develop heart disease or your immune system is the weakest and you're going to develop cancer, that's genetic. Are you going to get sick? Yeah. And it's yeah. not a question of how much fat is under your skin because some people accumulate fat around their organs. Yeah. They accumulate it under their skin. 20% of diabetics are normally weighted. Yes, um, a lot of Asian Americans are diabetic and their normal ranges um, in terms of fat, right? So they think, oh, well, Asian people eat a lot of rice. They must be healthy. But no, that's not true at all. Um, I have five uncles and my mom has two sisters and all of them have diabetes, but they're all thin. So you would never think that they're sick, right? But they're diabetic um, because they have the rice with the Western world food, right? Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, um, I believe in holistic nutrition. And so, you know, for me, it's one obviously is understanding the misinformation that we have from the food industries and understanding that the standard American diet is not beneficial, not for, uh, not for your gut health, not for heart disease, not even for like food addiction. Right. And so um, the education is one component, but at a certain point, then people will understand and we'll see the facts. We'll see the nutrition, um, the nutrient density in like certain foods like meat. But then there's this gap of, but why am I not able to stick to it, right? So people know that fast, like you can ask anybody, they don't even have to be on a, like a, a wholesome diet. You can ask the average Joe and say, do you think McDonald's is good to eat? Or, you know, fast food, like the no. fries and the sodas, they will say no. But then why do we keep going back to it? And that's yeah. the component that's not sticking, right? It's the component of why are we constantly eating these bad foods when we know it's not good for us? And I think that's where, you know, this whole food addiction is huge because that's the component I think that's been hidden for so long yeah. that, yeah. Hey, it's not that you don't have resolve or that you're not. Um, but, but that's how we're trained, right? Like if you're, if you're obese, just work out or eat a little less, right? That's yeah. the thought, right? Like yeah. cut your calories, right? We have all these calorie monitors because if you eat a little less, no matter what you're eating, you'll lose weight, right? And it's, it's these, true. yes, right? But these are the, these thoughts that are, 
and then it just furthers our doubts in us, right? So then the engineering yes. neurons have to even be stronger yes. in better, um, better neurons so that we follow the right things instead of being swayed by anything because then we start downing ourselves, right? So yes, it's, it's terrible. Just, yeah, it's just, it's just crazy. That's why I firmly, as much as I'm a nutritionist, you can't fix people by just educating on nutrition, no. right? I mean, I think most people know that wholesome foods are better for you than processed foods, uh. but there's a missing link. And I believe it's this food addiction. I think it's the wiring in our brains. And that's why we want to turn to these, right? When we're angry and we're stressed, we're not like, I'm going to go eat a piece of steak right now. Like that's not our initial gut, especially when we're so used to sugar. Um, and so what you're doing is so amazing. Um, you you know, and so one question I had for you is, um, in terms of fasting, right? So I know that especially in the eating disorder community, if you are, and this is where I think getting to know yourself is really important, but if you know that you are an anorexic, for example, then it's probably not ideal to be fasting because especially Mm -hmm. if you're using it as a tool to further your eating disorder. So yeah. uh, where do you stand with fasting? You know, there's a lot of um, information lately that says it's beneficial. So just yeah. wondering what your thoughts. So any, any kind of a national fad, I'm very suspicious of because um, every national fad ever has made food addiction worse for a lot of different reasons, malnutrition and just not enough food and, uh, addictive substances in the food plan, et cetera. So that's why we have a colossal fail rate on weight loss. It's not addressing the right problem. Okay, so I am a big fan of training the brain, as you can probably tell. And what I like to do is train my brain to only be hungry at certain times. And how do I do that? I only feed it at certain times. Uh, I don't, uh, yeah. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack. And uh, if I feed it at other times, it will ask me for food at those times. But if I only feed it four times a day, it's only going to ask me for food at those times. And if I feed it these really um, nicely portioned, unprocessed meals, um, it's not going to get hungry between meals if I give it enough food. Okay. That's, I think, the most comfortable life. You're you're never hungry. Um, You are just really beautifully and consistently nourished. Your body never wonders when food is coming. Your body is never afraid of famine. Your body is never afraid that you're going to die of starvation. And this is all in the context of for the 7 million years the human brains have been evolving, the leading cause of death was famine. The most deeply seated fear in that most primitive part of the brain, the survival brain, is fear of famine. Okay, so you got that background. And then you say, okay, I live in a westernized culture where food is everywhere all the time. So what would happen if, if a primitive person was going to eat? This is what would happen. They would have to go to a tremendous effort to find the food. They would find the food, and so would every other animal in the neighborhood. 
And so the predators would know, oh, yeah, this is the time of year when the peach trees uh, ripen, the peaches ripen. So all the humans and all the other animals are going to be there. So us, you know, predators, we're going to be there too, preying on them. We don't eat plants. We eat other animals. We're carnivores. Uh, but we gotta go, we got to figure out where those animals are going to be so we can eat them. So if you found food, what you, the survival behavior is eat it as fast as you can, eat it until you're absolutely gorged, then run away and hide until you process that, and then run back and do it again. Eat as much of it as you can, as fast as you can, before other animals come and get it before you or before somebody comes and eats you. This is normal eating behavior. This is what we've been evolved to do over 7 million years. And now uh, the American Psychiatric Association has pathologized that into the binge eating disorder. Why? Well, it's because there's food all the time. But every time that survival brain sees food, it's like, oh, you did as fast as you can, and then, and then run away and hide, which we interpret as shame. So you get people who lapse, and they come in and they say, it's really hard for me to be here. I just want to run away and hide. I'm like, well, that's normal. That's been going on for 7 million years. Of course, your brain is programmed to do that. But I'm sure I'm glad you came in here and talked about it instead. Okay, so... And you got to remember one other thing about addictions is you're getting high. You know, the, the reward is you're getting the surge of dopamine. Well, we know that not eating, I mean, Mother Nature is just so kind to us. So suppose you got into a period of famine uh, and um, you had to walk an extra couple of weeks in hopes of finding food. Well, the brain will start to release dopamine under those circumstances so that your pain, your experience of pain of not having enough to eat and having to walk is diminished long enough, deeply enough so that you can keep walking until you get to food again. So compassionate. Our brains are just, if you put this brain out into a, uh, into a wilderness and it knows how to find food in that wilderness, it functions perfectly. So this is my grave concern is that when you don't eat for a prolonged period of time, when you are getting high, and I think it's not that hard to transfer the high from the processed foods to the high of not eating. And I worry about developing anorexia. So that's one concern I have about prolonged fasting. I'm a big, big fan of fasting between meals and fasting from the time you eat your last meal until you eat your first meal. Big fan of that. Okay. Huge fan of that. That's, that's just great. So I, I think there are some like routines where like if you finish your last, if you have a snack or whatever at eight o'clock at night and you don't eat again until eight o'clock the next morning, that's 12 hours of fasting. I know people want to do 14 and 16 hours and I just don't, I, I don't like it. 
I don't like it. But what about the benefits of autophagy and apoptosis, you know, so where you have like cells in your body that can, when you don't use your digestive system, so your body's not focused inside on working on digesting food, but it's instead working on, and you know, these are kind of evidence-based, but um, having your cells then focus on cleaning up inside the house. Like, what do you think of those, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important not to eat during the night. We also have these very powerful circadian rhythms. Yes. And we do know that sleep and um, eating are on the same uh, circuit in yes. the brain. So that if you don't sleep well, you, you're then you're extra hungry the next day. If you don't eat enough, you don't sleep as well. Those two things are, are on the same neuro circuit. So I think it's crucial not to eat during the night. Finish your last meal of the day and then don't eat again. So um, the book I really like is Emeryn Mayer's it's the gut-mind connection. He's really clear on what happens during the night. And the fact that when you're not eating... <laughs> I'm so sorry. I can't remember the details. So, I mean, I know that when you're not eating, so there's um, a certain amount of time you shouldn't eat before bedtime. And so then when you do, when you don't eat, your body can then kind of store away memories, file it, get you ready for the next day to learn more information. So there's, um, there's so many benefits of not eating too close to bedtime and then having your digestive system be fully kind of emptied out. So then you could properly rest and all that. But but other than just not eating through the night, so even 12 hours, right? Sometimes they say, I think the study was that like to really induce autophagy and apoptosis and all those kind of, you know, inside cleaning of your cells, it would take maybe like two to three days of fasting. And, you know, people aren't recommending doing it often, right? So I think maybe, and depending on how sick you are, maybe you do it once a year or maybe once every other year, right? And, but if someone's constantly doing it, you know, there's, there, there's other questions of, well, is it because you can't lose weight while you're eating food? Is it because you eat too much? And then, so then you're just kind of compensating with fasting. Like, I think all of these questions are important as to why they're fasting, but I never thought about the, how the high of not eating cannot be attributed similarly to when you're eating carbs. And that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, Addictions are very transferable. The other thing I I totally believe that I I have a study so the, the one thing you've got to remember about all of these studies, I have never seen a fasting study done in food addicts. You're right. That, that is true. I don't think I've seen it either. Um, okay. Okay. So would so you Eric, then say, would you then say um, fasting, if you're not a food addict, may be a tool that someone can use? I wouldn't. Not in this culture. Really? Would, okay. This okay. is a setup for binging. You're fasting, but you're not fasting in a wilderness where it's really hard to find food. You're fasting in a food-soaked, food-stimulating, food corporation-driven culture. I just okay. think that's it. And, and I have a study. Okay. So, and then, so let me grab, wait for that study. So let me, one more question is, so, you know, there's some people that have dieted their whole lives, right? So their whole yeah. gut system is messed up. Um, mm-hmm. They've been living off of like a thousand calories. So now their body is like, okay. I have to function off a thousand calories, which is insufficient. So instead I'm going to take away her period. I'm going to make her go bald, you know, these types of things. And then when you reintroduce food, it's either they're going to gain weight because they have to eat at maybe a little bit higher of calories 
So how do you fix that without like, say, for example, fasting, because fasting has been shown to kind of balance out these hormones that like your metabolic rate, um, it has been shown to, um, I guess, heal um, and work better. So insulin becomes more sensitive while you're fasting. So yeah. um, would you just kind of say for people to just follow the process of eating um, good foods, and then it'll kind of fix itself? Like, what do you have? You well, I think there are two components. There are two big components, two major components. Um, but let me just first mention this, Eric. Study. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's a study. So it was a five-year perspective study, and what he did was he 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 cataloged uh, fasting. He sent two of these studies. He cataloged fasting at the beginning of the five years in this group. He just done another study where he cataloged dieting, okay. and in both cases, the higher levels of fasting or the high, higher levels of dieting correlated with higher levels of eating disorders at the end of the five years. Interesting. So I'm just, I'm so attached to research. Okay. So let's go to your study Wait, here. One, one last thing is um, I'd be curious. So if they were already fat adapted and then they fasted, then there's no kind of, they drop the glucose, you know, they have to kind of get fat adapted. It's just, you just go longer and not, eating because you're already burning ketones or creating a burning ketone. So I wonder if in that study, um, if they were glucose driven or glucose demanded individuals, then yes, um, when you start fasting for long term, it would be harder to transition. And then you would then and then when you refeed, if you're just eating carbs again, because um, I have tons of studies from I think Ansel Keys did one back in the day, where he took men and then did a starvation study. Where yeah. he, but it, he fed them glucose though. So they were eating, like they could chew gum through the whole time they're fasting, which is not really fasting, right? And then um, they were like given potatoes and just a bunch of carbs. And then they, a lot of them got really obsessed with food. They got food addiction, they got um, eating disorders, but their diet was wrong, right? So I guess my question, and you know, this is obviously all theory, but if we are eating whole foods and we are fat adapted and we're, you know, running off of ketones, is it that wrong or can it actually be beneficial and not cause an eating disorder or food addiction if we are already fat adapted? I don't know. But. Well, you, you're going back to something we talked about at the beginning of the interview, which is what is the degree of carbohydrate sensitivity? So whether you're fat adapted or which means um, that you're, um, in a state that you're eating a ketogenic food plan, yes. right? High fat and protein, lower, much, much lower carbs. The question is, and it's just a super excellent question. You really know your stuff, Judy. Um, if you're on a ketogenic diet versus a, a balanced um, fat, carb, protein diet, which is, by the way, the diet that's been recommended for food addicts for like 30 or 40 years. And I myself have come off that. I am, I, there's, you know, you get the, the list of unprocessed foods and there's a starch column. I myself am no longer able to tolerate the starches. Yeah. Let me just make sure I have the question right because this is just such a super excellent question. If you're on a ketogenic diet, is that going to address food addiction better is it going to give you more control than the um, than a food plan that is higher in carbs? Lower yes. In 
Yes, yeah. that's one. And then two, um, maybe it's safer to fast um, if you choose to fast like one, two days um, for like the autophagy, apoptosis to make you more insulin sensitive, benefit, okay. all of that okay. stuff if you were fat adapted. What is the most optimal food plan for uh, recovery from food addiction? And then the second question is, what is the most optimal fasting pattern for recovery from food addiction? Over here, I think um, that, the, again, the key issue is to get the processed foods, the, the addictive substances out. If you're working with an alcoholic, a cocaine addict, a smoker, the first thing is to get the addictive substances out. And then, in the case of food addiction, it's to assess for carbohydrate sensitivity. Okay. So if you are extremely carb sensitive, then you, it's very, just, yeah, it's not going to be surprising that a carnivore diet keeps you calmest, fewest cravings. Okay. So that is my really thinking on food plants. Get the processed ingredients out. And then you can do a rotation diet pretty easily. And you can see that on days when I eat grains, I'm asleep all day. I think I'll stop eating grains, you know. Uh, however, on days when I eat uh, something like um, butternut squash, I'm only a little bit sleepy. Well, still, it's, you're going to just keep working through and eliminating starches and and then you're going to go through the vegetables and you think, well, on days when I eat beets, I'm sleepy. I'm going to stop eating beets. And you just start to get into this rhythm of really being able to notice, I don't like feeling that way. And I associate that vegetable or this fruit with feeling that way. I'm going to stop doing that. It's a process of um, attaching particular foods to particular reactions. In my opinion, you've got to do that in a group because the brain is so delusional about what causes what because of exactly what you're talking about. The, the culture is just driven to um, divert attention to, from what's really going on. Okay, so just to summarize on what is the best food plan for, for recovering from food addiction, one, it's a food plan that doesn't contain any addictive substances, and two, it's a food plan that has eliminated carbs to the point where you are alert and not craving consistently. Okay. That makes sense. I completely agree with you. Okay. So do you not eat out at all then? Do, oh, I, yeah, I eat out. I, eat for, I, I, I live in Seattle. Okay. And I have done a study of the farm-to-table restaurants. Okay, that's right. I also, I, I don't care. You know, if you order a steak in a bad restaurant, it's going to make you sick. If you order a steak in a great restaurant, it's going to make you well. Oh, yeah. I've yeah. experienced um, having steak and just with salt, well, with their inflammatory oil, seed oils, and I broke out in hives the next day, and yeah. all I had was a steak. Yeah. And it, and it, yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. So then now let's get over to the fasting question. Um, food addicts have been starving their whole lives because they've tried to use substances, they've been told to use substances instead of food. So they think they're eating. Everybody tells them they're eating, but they're not. They're ingesting. It's just like ingest, like dropping, you know, marijuana gummy bears. 
They haven't been eating. They're incredibly malnourished. And that fear of famine is alive, well, flaming in their brains. So, you, you know, you look at Eric Stice's study, fasting precedes eating disorders. So nonetheless, nonetheless, your body absolutely must have those downtimes when you're not eating. I, I agree with you, Judy, just from the bottom of my heart, you need those hours in every 24-hour circadian period. You need a lot of hours of not eating in order for that gut to, um, okay, so what is it? So once you eat something, there are just a whole host of processes in the gut, cleaning processes that just stop. Because the, the gut says, oh, we got to process something. We, we're, well, it's always going to prioritize processing over cleaning. Right? Yes. yes. So, yeah, I am, I am just like totally on fire and happy and encouraged. about the, the one thing I really love about the fasting thing is that it's gotten people off of night eating. So night eating is horrible. And if you don't eat enough during the day and your cravings are building up and the fear of famine is building up and then you finally get home, nobody's around or only people who are used to having you binge and the food is right there and your colleagues aren't seeing you, nobody's seeing you, and you can get that TV turned on and start really pumping up the food stimulation and then you binge. And yeah, your, your willpower, you only have a finite amount of willpower throughout the day. And so yeah. by night, you, yeah. yeah, I never thought about the TV component though. So it's that, oh, you know, you, you've, for, for the whole day, you're, you know, you're muscling through saying, I shouldn't eat that. I can't eat that. And then by night, you're so hungry and you're, you eat yeah. one little bad thing. It sets you off. But I never thought about the TV also. Yeah part of the programming that's so crazy because yeah. most people do eat in front of the TV. Yeah. So oh yeah. It's just, yeah. So I think the big, the big thing that really helps recovering food addicts is the certainty, the security, the safety of knowing that they are going to have this phenomenally nourishing, um, substance-free meal regularly through the day. And they need that comfort. They need that security. They need that cushioning, that cocooning. Because, because basically eating a bunch of dopey chemicals instead of a meal is traumatizing. You know, your survival brain, like, I want a meal. I want a meal. We need some food. We need nourishment. Look, these cells, we don't have these... Um, you know, we don't have these nutrients in our system. We really need it. And then boom, instead of getting nutrients, you get a pile of chemicals. That's traumatizing. That's fear inducing. And I just think that giving that poor, traumatized, brutalized almost body, this the reassurance, the calm that there's going to be a meal and then there's going to be another one in four or five hours. And then there's and you don't have to deal with any substances between the meals. It's just going to be there. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. And then there, and then there won't be any. There won't be anything to process. For I don't, I don't know whether it's twelve or fourteen or sixteen hours. Uh, 
what is the right number of hours between the last time you eat and the next time you eat. I absolutely believe that in spades. But would I take that person with that history and have them not eat for two or three days? No way. Okay. No way. It makes sense when you um, talk about it from like a certainty, security, I can completely understand that because when you're in poverty or you're in restriction, then the natural tendency is to then binge, right? Because you're like, oh, I don't know when I get my next meal, so let me binge. binge." So I can see that um, from especially a mental health food addiction perspective. Um, Mm -hmm. So what what would you say then? Because, you know, I mean, the reality is that most women are like, okay, I'm healing, I'm eating clean, but then why am I not losing weight? Or why am I not at a weight that's happy for me? So what do you do with those types of clients, right? Because there's a lot of women like that out there, right? They're like, okay, well, I've dieted all this time. So I'm fine. I'm like going to remove all the foods that um, are bad for me. But now I'm eating super clean. Why am I not dropping the weight that I want to? And so that's when some people do think of fasting because it's, it's another tool, right? I'll be, it may not be the right one in your uh, perspective, but so what do you do with these, the weight loss desired women or men too? Yeah, so this is a very common situation, and I'm glad you're asking about it. It's it, So dieting leads to something called weight loss resistance. Yes. Where your brain has been traumatized by not enough food enough times that now it's really going to protect you against starvation. And that means it's going to hang on to every little bit of fat store that it can. And there are two things that really... I'm going to be honest here. I think the best thing to do for that is to get into a group, which is completely and totally 100% focused on the rest of your life. What are your crafts? What are your art projects? What are your relationships? What are you reading? How are you talking about it? How do you put things together? How do you think about things? I mean, in the arc four hours a day, we have these unbelievable conversations about you know, like, what is the relationship of compassion to self-esteem? And um, how do you connect with, an? Uh, what is praise in detail? How do you connect with another person by praising them in, in detail? And how do you practice doing that? And how do you turn that on yourself? And, oh, isn't this cool? Look what, what this ARC member has made. And, um, you know, exercise, like being out in nature, so often ARC members are taking walks while they're on these ARC calls and we get to see them all over the world in their, these beautiful places. Um, are you meditating? Are you doing tapping? Are you working uh, puzzles? Um, are you um, doing the crafts and, and the arts? Are you? Did you learn tapping? Wow, how did that work for you? And, um, you know, just like writing and... There's just like life is so full of all these super cool things to do with your brain and with your hearts and with your souls. Fucking forget about your body shape. Oh my God. That is like the most irrelevant thing. As long as you are eating enough food and you have enough fat on your body so that if you run out of food for three or four days or three or four weeks or three or four months, you're not going to starve to death. That's all. <laughs> that's all. That's, that's the whole issue. So a big part of the fight 
to get control of your food and to be happy. So yes, we, yes, we want to get control of our food. But in, in my thinking about these things, the food is one of six areas that needs healing. And a second one is body, where you like your body and your body is free from pain and it's doing what it's doing enjoyable things, relationships, food stimulation, emotions, and loneliness. Those are the other six areas that have to be up and humming and running uh, in order for the food piece to work. And you don't have to work on any one in any particular order. You're just working on all of them and you're getting happier and happier and happier. And after a while, people like, who cares what my body shape is? <laughs> my blood work is perfect. I'm super energetic. I can get down on the floor with my grandkids and I can get up off the floor with my grandkids. My joints don't hurt. Uh, my husband and I are having the time of our lives. And, um, you know, I just stay out of those food stimulating paces. I don't, I don't hang around with people who abuse processed foods anymore and et cetera, et cetera. So who cares what body shape I am? You got to disengage from media to do that. You have to disengage from media. And like, I'm a normally weighted person. I'm well within my BMI and all that stuff, but I will not let a health professional weigh me. I'm just like, what do you need to do? I'm here for an eye appointment. <laughs> well, we usually weigh people. Yeah. But if you don't want to be weighed, you don't have to. I don't want to be weighed. I don't want the doctor or whoever it is to be thinking about my fat tissue when they need to be looking at my eye tissue. <laughs> like, get a grip. So this comes out of the glamour industry, the diet industry. I mean, when people are not being preyed on by the food industry or the health industry, they're being preyed on by the diet industry. Now, I want to free my ARC members of the trauma of thinking that there's something wrong with your body shape. That's traumatic. That is extreme self-judgment, self-stigmatization. Uh, yeah, and it's not like people are not losing weight in the ARC. They're sure they are. They're eating clean and they're exercising and they're not obsessing about their weight. I have this idea, and I'm going to true confessions here. I don't have a study for it. Um, I think that whenever you think about your weight, for 7 million years, people only thought about their weight if they were facing starvation. So I have this little private theory. This is my personal theory. I told, I mean, I do tell people, if, I'm not, if I don't have a study, I'll tell you I'm surely speculating. I'm surely speculating here. Sure. I think every time you think about your weight, it drives a desire to eat because for 7 million years, we've associated that with, oh, look, I'm getting close to starvation. This is really terrifying. So don't think about weight. That's interesting. Know, because, yeah, no, no. That's really interesting because, you know, they, they kind of label all of that stuff like self-sabotaging, right? So we, even in communities, we want to make sure and, you know, have the best reputation and have the kind of best, like, who are you representative because you need your community to love you so that you can thrive in your community, right? And so there's a lot of labeling where um, if you're scared to do something in case, oh, then people are going to find out I'm not as great or I'm not as good um, mm -hmm. or I'm not thin enough. And so then I'm not good enough, right? So then there's all this labeling where um, people like self-sabotage. So I wonder, that makes a lot of sense. Like if you're so obsessed about 
losing weight and wanting to be thin. You tried this new diet and now you're cleaning up. So therefore you should be thin and you obsess about it. And then that obsession actually derails you from actually healing. Totally. So I, you know, now that you're using the word thin, I do have a study. It's also by Eric Stice and it correlates thin idealization with eating disorders that thin idealization is a predecessor it precedes eating disorders, the development of eating disorders, yeah. No, that that totally makes sense. Um, in our, uh, in the f- eating disorder facility, so the therapy was great, you know, the learning to self-love, self-introspect, why we do the things we do, those were all great tools. The eating part was not, but one rule they had was we could not um, bring any magazines, um, any <gasps> outside media that was triggering because Super. it gave the idea of this is what's normal and what i'm finding interesting as we're talking about this right now is that um even within the carnivore community there are like poster children right that are the if you eat this way you're gonna look this thin this buff this everything and so then there's the clients i work with that are like why do i not look like that yet right i've been on it for x amount of months i'm healing and it's crazy because month one I work with them they're struggling with they can't sleep they're they're sick and all these things and they've all healed that but now come month five or six they're like I still have all this excess weight and they just thought they would be like these poster children Um, and and it's like but you're forgetting how sick your body was and all of that is healed Um, and so it just takes them to be and I think it goes back to your you need to be in a community. Um, and if they were in the ark, maybe, you know, they would be reminded, like, who cares about this weight, which is kind of like a fake, you know, we're all different. Um, but you're healed from everything else. And you yeah. know, you're healthy now, right? And that's yeah. the most important thing. So yeah. it's, it's pretty powerful what you're saying. It's uh, very interesting. I didn't think of it um, from a weight perspective, right? Because that's probably the number one question I get is, okay, I've healed everything or almost everything. But why am I not losing the weight like XYZ person. And I'm just like, we don't know what XYZ person is doing, but all your other markers in your health, including your symptoms, are showing that you are healing. Yeah, um, we actually, we have a rule that in our, in our live events and in our, we, so we have a Facebook group. So in ARC spaces, we don't talk about food and we don't talk about body shape. So we can talk about... Um, you know, things like, uh, oh, I was around this person and they were just obsessing about, they're talking obsessively about this diet and I got triggered and, and I, the triggering was that I don't like my body. So yes, we can talk about body, but we don't sure. talk about, ah, you know, I'm of the scale a quarter pound. No, no. In fact, one of our biggest fights is to get people to take the scale out of their house. Oh, that's yeah. great. Yeah, that's great. Um, I know in our eating disorder facility, they never wanted you to weigh yourself. Um, we were not allowed to talk about numbers and quantity. So we'll, we'll talk, we'll have group discussions and talk about, I struggled with this, but you can yeah. never say what it was, you know, what, uh-huh. you know, so yes. anything that yeah. then can then trigger someone else. So yeah, yeah. that's powerful because that, that stuff works, right? So it gives you the community of um, relatability without being triggered. Yeah. Well, the other, the, one of our biggest slogans is a slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. No, so we have been absolutely poisoned by these quick weight loss schemes. Quick weight loss just means more weight gain, quick weight regain, plus more, because that primitive brain is going to make sure that doesn't happen again. 
And um, it's just another kind of trauma, a quick weight loss. So, you know, if somebody has been in the ark for two years, they've done every weight loss thing, every, anything, including bariatric surgery, none of it's worked. You know, they're coming in at over 400 pounds, but in the first two years, they've lost 50 pounds. That's a friggin' miracle. Yeah. That's a miracle that they're able to lose weight at all. And then in the meanwhile, they've had a great two years. Yes. You know, they remembered that they liked doing X, Y, Z, and they remembered that they really love, and they, they, now they get out in their neighborhood, and they, um, they're upping their singing. And, uh, yeah, your body, sh you are not your body shape. You're this happy, wonderful, spectacular, incredible person. Your body shape has nothing to do with that. Right. Getting people reconnected with their true selves. Yeah. yeah. No, it sounds like they're getting back to optimal health, which is, you know, being able to live your life. Um, yeah. And I'm a big component of that. Yeah. So, being able to live your life. Exactly. Exactly. So, so what do you think of sweeteners? And I know for mental health, it's horrible. I know that. But, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I drink Diet Coke or I drink the Stevia's or the fat bombs with the Rizzertal and I feel fine my sugar doesn't go up. And I'm like, but that's only your glucose levels. It doesn't talk about your insulin. It doesn't talk about gut health or your mental health of stimulating. Yeah. Cravings. yeah. But I wanted to hear your thoughts on it real quick. Well, I think the, I think the thing that's very, very hard for people to grasp is that this has spread through the world, like smoking spread through the world. Mm -hmm. So you, when um, these tobacco executives got a hold of processed foods, they already had their addiction business model set up. So they were able to just pump all this stuff through the convenience store system and, and really ramp up the children's advertising like threefold in a short seven years. They did it so fast. And just like they, they, they slid in a stealth addiction to cigarettes, you know, and um, in the 1950s, if you got a meal on an airplane, it had a pack of three cigarettes on it. Wow, I didn't know. You were traveling and you were so elegant and it was so cool and it's so sexy to smoke cigarettes. So you would sit there on the plane, you would smoke those cigarettes, then that's all it took. Three cigarettes to serve to hyperactivate the addictive pathways in the brain. So they were able to slide it in. Oh, this is sexy. This is rebellious. Oh, this is masculine. And then before you knew it, you had an addiction. It wasn't pleasurable. It wasn't fun. You just had a friggin' annoying, really awful addiction. They did the same thing with food. But now when you, so I had to dig down into the USDA statistics to get these numbers. They don't publish these numbers. But in 1999, people were eating a pound per person per day on average of sugars, flours, high fat dairy, and French fries. Okay, so what does that say about prevalence? What does that say about how many people must have this? And if you look at the diagnostic criteria for addiction, most people have it across a range of severity. So the American Psychiatric Association says there are 11 addictive behaviors. If you have six or more, you have a severe addiction. If you have uh, two or three, it's mild. Four or five is, is moderate. I would say about half Americans would exhibit six or more of these. And the other thing you have to remember about that number, that's a pound per person per day disappearing into the U.S. economy 
And so at the lower half, the half of Americans who are eating less than a pound are the children. So you just think most Americans are eating more than a pound per person per day. And I have a hard time persuading practitioners uh, that they need to ask every there's a quiz on the Food Addiction Reset website that has those I love in a criteria. I'm also happy to send practitioners um, a self-quiz that they can put in their waiting rooms with those 11 criteria. Somebody comes in with that quiz and hands it over, that practitioner knows immediately. They have, that they're, that the first thing they have to do with that person is work on the, the processed food addiction. So, um, I, I talked to a practitioner after one of my talks at Low Carb USA. I cannot say enough good things about Low Carb USA. Doug Reynolds, Pam Devine, they're just amazing. And they were the first, pers- first group to give me speaking engagements. But after one here in Seattle, I talked to this fantastic practitioner. He said, John, 60% of my patients need to make a diet change. They can't make it. Now I see why. So I said, yes, let's work together. I went out and had lunch with him um, some months later. And he said, I've really thought about this so hard. I think two, I can think of two people who have what you're talking about. No, no, 60% have what I'm talking about. He had like 600 patients. It's 360 of your patients have this because they are facing dialysis and they can't stop eating the sugar. So he missed it. I missed explaining it properly. (laughs) It comes back to me. So something I said or did or whatever caused him to just miss that the 60% who can't make a diet change, this is this, this invisible wall of food addiction between the practitioner and the patient. Well, some, so, some people aren't ready to hear it, I believe. I don't think it was you, per se, but I think it might have just been, you know, he heard it from, you know, they say that, you know, everyone has different glasses or lenses yes. on, and they, it's, yes. their, it's amazing what people will perceive in the same situation if you ask them back what yeah. they heard, what they saw. Um, and there's a psychology studies about that. Like people will be at a football game and they'll say, what did you see? And when they give the results, it's like a completely different event. Yes. So that's probably what happened with him. He probably is in a certain mindset. It was probably um, what you told him was very eye-opening, but maybe not to the full extent that, you know, you were trying to portray. Maybe he only was able to grasp a portion of it, but, but he'll get there. I mean, it's. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it will. You know, they say that we're so bombarded with messaging now that we need to see something 17 times before it sinks in. Wow. So, Judy, I just want to thank you so much for being at least one of those 17 times. People will do come back after these podcasts and they say, well, I'm up to five times. I've watched it five times. (laughs) I, I don't have everything yet. I'm going to watch it again. That's amazing. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's such a huge shift. It just means everything you've ever heard about eating is not consistent with this food addiction model. In the eating recovery, they talk about why you use food as a tool, but they never talk about that 
the food itself can be addictive. They talk about your childhood traumas or mm. your self-worth, right? But they never talk about maybe it's the actual food. And it yeah. makes sense. I mean, the food they feed you is, it's like microwave food, right? Just frozen food that they heat up. And then if you don't eat it, then they give you that insurer I'm talking about that, you know, like the multivitamin, but it's high in sugar, high in glucose. And so terrible. Yeah. Uh, this, is, um, this is a whole new world, but it is just going to take people like you. Oh, thank who you. Who are willing to put the word out and willing to open the door. Well, Joan, you have, I mean, you have so much information and this has been wonderful. Um, as we're wrapping up, if you could talk a little bit about your textbook, where people can get it, and as well as your, you know, your art group, um, if people are interested, where they can kind of sign up and learn more Thank about you. that as well. Thank you so much. We, we have something really exciting going on, which is, um, well, first of all, the textbook is at Amazon. Uh, we've only had the hardback and the Kindle to date, but on April 1st, they're going to bring out a paperback. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. And so the paperback is on pre-sale at Amazon. Okay. I'll link to it. I'll look for it and I'll link to it. Thank you. Okay. So, um, the ARC, if you just need to a place where you can be treasured for yourself. And for some people, they don't even know what that means because they've been so oppressed based on their body shape. Um, let's just try it out it's, it's cool it's very cool to be treasured for who you are right now yes. and to be valued and to be lifted up you're cool right now uh, that's at addiction uh, sorry foodaddictionreset.com and you can sign up and join the ARC there we have two new training programs okay. which I'm very excited about one training program is at Food Addiction Professionals, and that teaches people, uh, eventually, once they have all the classes written, it'll be a three-year program, but it teaches professionals how to talk to, talk to their patients, how to motivate them, how to uh, describe reality, you know, what is really going on, and then how to work their food plans, uh, it's just, it's 10 courses over a three-year period, and that's at foodaddictionprofessionals.com. Okay. Now, here's the thing I'm really excited about, which we're just rolling out. It's in beta testing right now. Oh, let me just add one th more thing for the, the professionals. There are client tools there. There are short videos and there are handouts. There are things that you can put to use right away, day one. You can start to... The professionals tell me that 50 to 90% of their patients can't make really desperately needed diet changes. So you will be able, you'll be empowered to start helping those people make better. No, I mean, just manage their food in this horrible environment better from day one. And then, I mean, I hear um, health professionals who are retiring because they're so frustrating. The only tool they have is prescriptions and uh, they're just watching their patients go into amputations and blindness and heart failure, and they know that they're not being effective. So those are the, that's what these courses are for, those people who are just frustrated. They don't know how to manage an addiction, a severe addiction. They didn't get that training. So the, the food addiction professionals is for that. 
Yeah, the training that I'm also really, really excited about is we have a new training called ARC Manager. You're training to be an ARC Manager. It's the ARC Manager training. And because our first ARC is almost full, and we are, we're needing to replicate that. You can't have a community of more than about 125 to 200 people. It loses its cohesiveness, and it doesn't work to drive conformance. So we're going to... Um, the, the max out each arc at 125 people. So that means we're going to need arc managers and arc managers are people who understand how to be compassionate, how to create really, really tiny successful steps. So people are successful all the time, how to be incredibly patient, how to explain the science, how to be powerful in this environment where right now the, the addiction marketing scientists at the food industry have all the power. Now, how do you be powerful? How do you be the person who leads somebody out of this mess? And so that is available to ARC members, but anybody can join the ARC. And well, it'll be in beta testing until April 1st, and uh, then we'll start charging for it, and it'll be very reasonable. It'll be like $200 a month. So... I think, and then the cool thing is that because I have a business background, I, uh, and because I have a really good business manager who I work with, she's really my partner, Tina Little, uh, because I have a business background is what will happen, like phase three of this training is you are building your own arc. So we have 13,000 members of our Facebook food addiction education group but I don't have 13 people in a protected environment. A Facebook group is not enough. So we will have ways, we will stick with the person until they have built out their own arc of 125 people. And then working, you know, maybe four or five hours a day max, but every day, um, they will have a great business. Yes. So we charge $59 a month for the arc we will take, you know, a portion of that to continue to provide programming. Like we'll pro provide three out of the four hours a day of programming, the live events. The art manager will provide one live event for their small group. And they'll be able to make $50,000 a year. It'll be just a fantastic job doing the most gratifying thing on earth. That model is based on my experience. I graduated college in 1974 and everybody wanted to be a lawyer because the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement had been so exhilarating and successful. So everybody went to law school. The law schools were overflowing. They all graduated and they couldn't find jobs. Too many lawyers for that number of <laughs> jobs. So here's what they did. They went out and they created their own businesses. They found people who had been wronged and they encouraged them to file suits and then pretty soon the court system was overrun and we became a litigious society. But my idea is that if I can train enough of these ARC managers and they have these fabulous, like this could be a side hustle for somebody who's retired or for somebody who um, is working uh, some job where they, they don't have to work eight hours, they could work through some flexible hours in another job and they can add these four or five hours a day working with this 125 people and then also training these 125 people to become ARC managers 
or we actually we're gonna we'll offer a certification it'll be a food addiction reset educator or something like that so that if they don't want to be a part of the ARC organization they can go off and they still have their certification and they know what to do so that to me is the most exciting thing it's very affordable it's the most coolest I mean, it's it's doing what Judy does, but it just it's just peer support. It's not a professional license. It's not a license at all. It's a business, more like a business certification or like a lay certification where you might be a, a lay person in a faith organization or in a 12-step group. Uh, it's a lay certification. Right. I mean, it gives you, it sounds like it gives you the tools. So like one, if you're already studied nutrition and you've done that and you don't kind of know any business acumen, then mm -hmm. it kind of helps you to, and if you like this, you know, the food addiction, um, healing people from processed foods, it gives you a tool to now use to just build a business if that mm -hmm. isn't your forte. Um, secondly, it could also help people that, like you said, if they're part of a church or if they're part of a bigger community where they know that, hey, I need to... Like, I know that food is addictive, but how do I articulate that, right? Like, how do I help people get off sugar? And if yeah. you get trained as an art manager, one, you'll have all the hours of training from these four-hour communities, but then you'll, and so you'll get that 10,000-hour thing. Um, but you'll also um, be able to actually train people because you've been trained. So I think yeah. it's a great opportunity um, for people that are interested, you know, and I, I'm sure people that graduate from your art community will also want to give back and then they'll get passion for that. They do. They do. Yeah. Um, they, these, these art members have really big hearts and yeah. you know, like it was 24 years ago, the first thing I did was make a list of unprocessed foods and a list of excluded foods and started to try to help other people. Is this help? So where can people find you other than those websites for your resources? Like if people wanted to, do, are you on social media? Um, you yeah. mentioned the Facebook group. So I'll add that too. So, uh, food addiction education is our Facebook group. Uh, I think Twitter is at Joan F. Land. Instagram. You can find me on Instagram at Joan F. Land and do follow us because we, we are active. We post all the time. I mean, sometimes at Facebook, I'll post three times a day. Sometimes I might miss a day here and there, but, and they're provocative. Like, um, they're like, it's just so hard to get the brain wrapped around. You go into a grocery store, 98% of what is in there has an addictive substance in it. It's very right. hard to get that deep on the inside. And so just provoke, like, you know, provoke discussion. I try to provoke discussion in this. That's space. good. I, I think that's really good because it also makes it hard that when, you know, modern world society going to the market and then you have the community members, not our community, but just, you know, the average person out there, if they hear about you removing all these foods, they kind of think that you're a little different, right? Um, and then you feel, and as a community wanting to be connected, it makes it that much harder. So I think it takes groups like the art group to have people truly heal, not like a, you know, kind of like a band-aid fix, but to really heal. Because I mean, a lot of people are losing their lives way too early and they're living unhappy lives because of the food. Do you know, I, was, I lived in Houston for 23 years and I was back there recently. And in one week, uh, I learned that my, former next door neighbor was dying and she has died 
my a college housemate my age died and then a much younger the husband of um a dear friend just heart attack came home one night and he was gone three people in one week you know i'm i'm really upset about the coronavirus the coronavirus has killed i think as of today or recently 2000 people that's horrible it's a nightmare and it's spreading a 2000 almost 2000 1800 almost 2000 people died today yesterday and tomorrow each from diet related diseases i know i know it's and people just think oh he died of a heart attack uh no he died of processed food addiction promulgated by the same people who brought us smoking diet related diseases are not now the leading cause of death worldwide preventable the leading cause of preventable death were worldwide and it overtook smoking so these are the same corporations it's, it's terrible it's, it's so unfortunate and it's not even just if we were to add in like the mental health right like no. Depression is one of the, I think it's the number one um, disability in, you know, the U.S. I don't know if the world, but, and so if we were to add in all the illnesses of people that are alive with food addiction and the food processing, it'd be exponentially more. And it's, it's unfortunate, right? Because it's, <sighs> if you were to just remove these foods, and I know that sounds so simple, right? Just remove. But if you were to you would significantly feel improvements very quickly. And then it's just yeah. how do you make it stick, right? Yeah, it is. Um, the withdrawal is only like four to eight days. Yeah. And then you, you start popping out of the brain fog and you pop, like people come into the arc, they finally get, you know, their, their days and days of abstinence together and they realize that they're not stupid. So they've been told their whole lives that they were stupid, that they were not bright. And that they didn't just have a future in that direction. They had brain fog from processed foods. And then you get them off and you get them into these conversations. ARC people say the most incredible things. They're brilliant. But it's because they don't have brain fog. Right. Maybe they really are brilliant. But it's just, I say this to them all the time. We'll come to the end of a chat or we'll come to the end of a call. And I say, guys, you guys are so smart. And you're so eloquent and you describe things so beautifully and you express yourself incredibly and you're so communicative and you're so connected. I think humans are just that way. I really I, do. I believe it too. I really do. I believe it too. We're, we're functioning at a much subpar level than we can. And it's just, it's disheartening. I mean, that's why I'm here too. I have a business background, but I switched to health because yeah, I, I get it. So people are out there missing their entire lives without knowing that they're missing their entire yes, lives. Exactly. Brain fog and fatigue and depression alone. Yeah. And here the cigarette industry has been, just like they made smoking sexy, they made overeating about fat tissue. It's not about fat tissue. It's about brain tissue. That's true. Yeah. That's very true. Well, thank you so much for your time, oh, Joan. This has been so amazing. helpful. Yeah. I can't wait to meet you at KetoCon. It'll be so much fun. I Thank you. All right, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the video. Please make sure to subscribe and hit the bell. This allows me to provide you guys more free content. I hope that you guys learned a lot more about food addiction 
and your overall relationship with food and how nutrition is very multifaceted. That's why I'm all about holistic nutrition. It is not just about the food we eat. We need to make sure that even after we learn about what foods are the most ideal for us, that we also need to know how to make it stick, how to make our nutritional behaviors and decisions stick for the rest of our lives, and also how we incorporate sleep and stress management and community and a bunch of other things. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat. Take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you guys soon. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.